Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. A Dear Media original podcast. Hello, what is up? And welcome to Wine Face, where we're breaking down everything the experts know about wine in a fun, digestible, and accessible way, because wine is for enjoying and wine is for everyone. I'm your host, Helen Johannesson from Helen's Wines in beautiful Los Angeles, California. And it's true. It is beautiful, and I am in LA. And hello, thank you so much for tuning in. Should I say hello again? Hello, it's it's a triple hello today because this episode is a triple threat. I've got three goals. One, let's educate you. Two, let's get you excited. And three, let's really get you excited. Okay, so that's double excitement. This is the history of champagne. Do you know what that means? It means my version of the history of champagne. I am not like a scholar. I didn't go to the College of Champagne, but I do think it's important. Where did it come from? How did it get to be how it is today? And why is that important for you when you're rolling into the store to buy a bottle of champs for your real friends? Because there ain't no champs for your fake friends. I got to give you the information. Listen, champagne is part of the cultural zeitgeist, but it wasn't always that way. It's had ebbs and flows. Let's first lay some groundwork. What is champagne? So champagne is a place. It's in France. If you're in France, you would go east of Paris for about an hour and a half, and then you'd be in the flatlands of Champagne. It is pretty flat. It gets very cold in the winter. And in order to be called Champagne, it has to be grown in Champagne. There's all kinds of rules associated with Champagne from the grapes you can put in the bottle to how the wine is actually made. But let me tell you, the trail is long. The mountain is high. Champagne was not always this way. And not all sparkling wine is champagne. And not all champagne is sparkling wine. It is a little bit more simple and complex. So the simple thing is, if you don't see the word champagne on the bottle of wine, it is not champagne. It has to say champagne. It will say it very clearly. So that is one hard and fast rule, which there is no gray area when it comes to this area for making wine and the AOC, which are the French wine laws around it. But let's start with the history. There is a crazy pedigree here. How do we get from like some monks way back in the day to like, people popping bubbly on a plane and shaking it up and then the champagne goes everywhere, which by the way, don't do because it's a waste of a lot of money. Champagne is expensive. We're going to talk about why is it expensive and the public versus my perception of champagne. So first, the history of champagne 
is that the region predates the style of wine that is associated with it today. So if we go way, way back, the wines that were made from champagne, they were called wines from champagne, but they were not sparkling. They were not what we know today as like the Moet, the Vouv, the Bollinger. They were made by monks. And if you go way, 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 way back in the OG days of winemaking in Champagne, it was all controlled by monasteries, which is how all wine production was controlled way back. I'm talking first century, okay? We're talking first century vibes. This is so far back. I mean, it's like a fairy tale. I like straight up friars on little wine trolleys with horses getting robbed by Robin Hood. Like that's the type of shit. We're going way back to there. So it was also always held in very high regard. So champagne always had a good reputation. It never was like, oh, this place kind of sucks and the wines suck. But like then suddenly they got the glow up by becoming sparkling, which we're going to get into. No, they were always amazing. They were always associated with celebrations, served at high level court functions. They were always royal. The shit was always elite. And so their pedigree for having that reputation starts at a very early point in time. Wines from Champagne were exclusively served at things like a coronation, which is so wild. But this isn't the sparkling wine we're talking about. It's just still wine from Champagne. So the question that I think is burning through everyone's pockets, mind, soul, and body is how did we get from monasteries making still wine from Champagne and everyone thinks it's dope to Dom Perignon? Well, there's two stories. Let me give you the real story and then I'll give you the fake story. So the real story is Champagne became a sparkling wine phenom by accident. Way back in the 17th century, it gets really cold in Champagne and it would get so cold where the wine bottles were being stored that the bottles would freeze. And what happens when you freeze a wine or when the bottles got too cold, it arrested their fermentation process and it caused CO2, carbon dioxide, what makes a wine sparkling, to develop. Now, most of the time what was happening is the bottles were exploding, which also happens because this shit is chemical. But the reality is the first sparkling wine was not on purpose. It was a total accident, but people thought it was all the rage. And this continued into the 18th century. There is the lore. Now there's this whole sort of like old wives tale, but it's like an old champagne house tale that there was actually a guy named Dom Perignon, true story. And century later, another Dom was like, oh, Dom Perignon discovered champagne in its current iteration, was the one who is responsible for making it sparkling. The reality is that Dom Perignon, this guy was a monk. He was there when wine was accidentally made sparkling, but he didn't invent it. This shit was totally by accident. And what is cool about him is he helped refine the process of what we now know today as Dom Perignon, you know, the actual champagne house, and set forth a path for all fellow champagne houses to figure out how to refine and control a process that otherwise was accidental and completely volatile. So this came down to the concept of how do you prune the grapes? When do you harvest the grapes? Like what type of bottles are you putting the wine in? What type of closures are you using? How can you control the process slightly so that you force the accidental into something intentional. And 
The reason why Dom Perignon has the reputation for inventing champagne is it's sort of like a mythic fairy tale that people in Champagne back in the day, not way back in the day, but you know, a couple hundred years ago, were like, oh, this sounds cool. And it's like Dom Perignon. And of course, the house of Dom Perignon loved to judge this story that he just like invented it. And he's just like this genius. And there's a lot of pros about what he did, especially since he did analyze the process and try and figure out what it means. So there is one thing that's super important about champagne. And it is unique to this region. And it is the beginning of what Dom Perignon started. And that is something called the method champenois. It's kind of like the rules of the road for how you make champagne. It's part of what makes champagne so special. It's part of the culture and the tradition and how the energy that becomes those lovely refined bubbles in the bottle is captured is all a methodical process that has a lot to do with post-growing the grapes on the vine. But a key to this definition is, think about it this way. There's a couple phases. Phase one of normal winemaking you do for champagne, which is you pick the grapes, you ferment those grapes into wine as we would know it today. So that's true for champagne as well. The one caveat is they do pick the grapes a little bit earlier, but the key definition to method champenois is that there is a second fermentation. So not the one that converts the sugar and yeast into alcohol. The secondary fermentation is one that takes place in the bottle. And what's special about champagne is something called triage. It's the liquor de triage. It's where sugar and yeast are added to the bottle. Once it's already quote unquote wine, it's already gone through its first fermentation. It is already a wine you could drink, even though it wouldn't taste very good. So you don't want to drink it, but you could technically has alcohol if you want to get crunk on that first ferment champagne. That's definitely not a thing. And I don't think it should be, but it is liquor de triage. Some people call it after the fact dosage. It's referring to the amount of sugar that is added. Now, you might be saying to yourself, hold up, Helen. You have been telling us on several episodes that you should not be having wine with anything added or anything taken away. And here you are on your History of Champagne podcast talking about them adding sugar AKA the devil. No, the liquor to triage. Now, this is all circling back to method champenoise. It's specific to the process of making this style of wine. So there's always exceptions to all rules. We're going to get into the trends of the liquor de triage at the end of the podcast. So hang on to your coattails, folks, because there is a sustainable and natty movement happening in Champagne having to do with this. But I can't tell you about it yet because I first have to tell you about the method champenois. So after you add the triage, which is measured sugar and yeast, the bottle is sealed with a crown cap. Think like a beer cap. The bottle is sealed and there it goes for its second fermentation. Now, what Dom Perignon and what champagne work to modernize and industrialize is this method, this second fermentation and how to actually get it to function properly. And a, a system called riddling was introduced. And riddling is where you take the bottle and you put the neck, so the skinny part of the bottle, at about a 45, I would say, degree angle into, it's like a riddle holder. It basically holds the neck of the bottle and the 
fat part of the bottle sticks in the air at 45 degrees. So it looks kind of like there's a bunch of bottles on a board diving into an ocean behind it. Does that visual work? Anyway, what this process does is it keeps the wine at an angle where you can slowly over time collect the dead yeast cells, aka the lees, as it's fermenting in the bottle in the neck, the skinny part of the bottle. And why this is important is, A, it helps clarify the champagne in a more natural way. So when I say clarify, it's not, champagne's like crystal clear, right? Aside from the bubbles, it's not hazy, it's not woozy, there aren't particles floating in it like a pet gnat. It's this meticulous riddling process and basically you have to turn the bottle like a micro amount each day. Now there's machines that do this, which are crazy, they're robots, but back in the day it would be hand riddling. So you'd have to go and turn each bottle like a centimeter, like a tiny, tiny amount. And as you did that over time, one thing about champagne that it's famous for is its extended aging of a wine after its secondary fermentation in the bottle as it's aging, quote unquote, on the lees, which is those dead yeast cells from the secondary fermentation that you're trying to capture in the neck of the bottle, that you're riddling tiny little increments over time to collect so that you have this like fresh, clear aspect. All of this meticulous, methodical process is literally what makes champagne so dope. I mean, obviously it's like the terroir and like where the grapes are grown, but like that takes time. Some people age their wine on the lees for years. Like I'm not talking like two months, like seven years. It really depends on the champagne house producer. So, I mean, honestly, let's just like take a moment, have like a round of applause for champagne. Like, dang, they're really doing it. And now it kind of cuts to the core of like, why is champagne expensive? You know, why does something that has this luxury profile costs as much as it does. A lot of it has to do with how meticulous the process it is to make it. But let's go back to the 18th century because champagne in its sparkling form was all the fricking rage. Like royal courts in every country were drinking champagne. What's crazy is that champagne used to be a lot sweeter than it is now. It was bubbly, but it was really sweet. It was not perfected into this dry expression. The tastes of the people change over time. It's really interesting because like I can't imagine drinking a syrupy sweet champagne, but like back in the 18th century, that was the shit, especially German courts. They loved it there. The first champagne house to open was Ruinart. And what we refer to a champagne house is these big, brands that we know today started as house estates, right? And this was an estate that made champagne. And over time, how these estates grew or quote unquote champagne houses is they would source grapes from other vineyards outside of their own. So a champagne house, right, is Ruinart, it's Tattinger, you know, it's Vouve Clicquot, it's Moet Chandon, it's these big, big brand champagne houses. And as these champagne houses came to open and be like known around the world, the other OGs, let me just shout out our Gosset, not as good as it used to be, I'm sure, Tattinger, 
those started to open the one that really revolutionized the industrialization of champagne. And it'll come as no surprise to my folks who know me is Veuve Clicquot. And why I say that is because Veuve Clicquot to me is the most industrial champagne out there. That and Moet. I'm not trying to diss them. Okay. I'm just saying that like you see Veuve everywhere, right? It's so accessible, but yet it has been able to maintain this prestige of like, well, it's a special occasion. We're going to have Veuve Clicquot. But Veuve Clicquot is the one who modernized and industrialized champagne. And they really honed in on the method champenois, which is the method that I just talked about. They took all the advancements that Dom Perignon put in place, Ruinart, all these other houses had started working in a way towards the method champenois, but Veuve Clicquot whoop, swooped in and Riddling was first developed by Veuve Clicquot and it was actually Madame Clicquot, yo, okay? It was not the husband. He died. She was widowed and she was the one who had the foresight to input the Riddling method in order to collect the dead yeast cells. Because think about it this way, you can't like, you can't open the bottle of champagne once it's bubbly filter it or let it, you know, separate it. You have to, and I'm going to get into how they actually do this, but there had to be a method of how to collect and filter while the wine was still in the bottle. So shout out to Madame Clicquot. I think that's my favorite part about Veuve Clicquot. I'm not trying to be a hater. You know, someone once said to me, it's hard to go like, I don't like Veuve Clicquot because there's a lot of people who feel like, oh, it's a graduation or it's a wedding. Like I'm going to really style out with Veuve Clicquot. And I don't want to take that prestige away from anyone. But when we round up at the end, I'm going to tell you why you might want to spend your dollars somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, you're going to get a more satisfactory product. So back to the history. We're rolling into present day. People are drinking champagne all over. Champagne was the rage until about 1910. And champagne dipped hard. Phylloxera raged the vines, which is the last, there's been phylloxera. I mean, we are going to do an episode on just what is phylloxera and how did it devastate the vines of Europe. But it basically is the last, it ate the vines, it killed a lot of them. Growers in champagne were also rioting at this time. Now, remember, the growers were not the producers. This is how champagne was set up and how it's different from other areas. The growers were growing their grapes and selling their grapes to big champagne houses like Dom Perignon, like Veuve Clicquot. So they were rioting. They were unhappy. And then during both World War I and World War II, a lot of the vineyards in Champagne were actually battlefields. So Champagne had a sort of dip in its like life cycle span. But da, 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 from the 1950s to now, champagne production has tripled. It's a much bigger industry and it has a very interesting future. So while it did take a knee, it's now back up in its cheering status. I got to say, though, one of the craziest wines I've ever had in my life was out of a Jeroboam size bottle. And a Jeroboam is the size of four bottles of wine. So it's double the size of a Magnum. And it was a 1942 Bollinger Champagne. So like, think about that. Like 1942 is during World War II. And I guess apparently it was a bottle that either Bollinger had like hid because the Nazis went and like pillaged a shit ton of champagne. They just took a lot from these houses. But it was wild. 
1942. It's 2022. I probably had this 11 years ago. So like 2010-ish, 11, you know, somewhere around then. So still 1942 to then is a ton of time. It was still sparkling. There were still bubbles. It tasted like white truffles and like it was creamy and dreamy. It literally blew my mind. And I felt like I was high on like some cosmic supply. So aged wine can be transportive. I just got to say right here, especially aged champagne. Now, there are a few things that you should know about champagne. I'm just going to go through this real quick. So there is a classification that you'll see on champagne about how dry or sweet champagnes are. And I do think this is important because if you're going out into the world to order or buy champagne, you should be sort of in tune with what's up. So the driest champagne, meaning remember that liquor de triage, that quote unquote dosage, the amount of sugar that's added to ignite the second fermentation. So the driest version of that, meaning that no sugar is added at all. It's just sugar that's residual from the grapes is brut nature. Brut nature, it's nature, right? Brut nature. Then the little level up is extra brut. And then the level above that is brut. So extra brut is more dry than brut. And then there's extra sec, which has a hint of sweetness. So it's not like a dessert wine, but it's going to be a little more sweet. And then there's sec, which is a sweet champagne. You are rarely going to see extra sec and sec in this marketplace, but you will see a lot of brut. Of the three you'll most commonly see, it's Brut Nature, Extra Brut, and Brut. And Brut is going to have the most sugar that's added. But you might not be able to taste the sweetness because it's so integrated. Because think about it, they're picking their grapes a little bit earlier. They're a little more acidic. So those are the classifications. But I think the real question I have, and when I was thinking about the history of champagne, is what's the future of champagne? And there is a lot that's happening in Champagne to push for its sustainability and the ability to continue making wines of such a high quality level. There's rumors that they might change the grapes that are allowed to go into Champagne. There's other rumors that they might change rules of how Champagne is made, which all of that would be like completely flabbergasted. Right now, there's very strict rules. Champagne can only be made from four grapes. It can be made from one of those grapes or a blend of the four, but it cannot be made from any other grape, even if it's grown in Champagne. So those four grapes are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Pinot Blanc. And what's important to know about that is 90, like majority of the Champagnes are made as a quote unquote white wine. And the classifications you're going to look for are like a Blanc de Blanc is all Chardonnay. A Blanc de Noir is a white wine made from Pinot Noir grapes. And if it doesn't call out anything like a Blanc de nothing, then it means that it's a blend of usually Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. There is one other history tidbit that is kind of getting flipped on its head right now because there's the liquor de triage, right? I mentioned it at the middle of this podcast and now I'm bringing it back up. So there are some more organic, biodynamic, natural champagne producers who are doing honey trials. So instead of adding sugar, they are raising bees. They're using local honey and using that for their liquor de triage, their dosage, because they argue that it is more clear expression of terroir. So it actually is more, quote unquote, champagne than the current method champenois. 
So that's really, really interesting. So far, there's a lot of really solid arguments. So this might get accepted as something that more and more people are doing. But the movement for me right now is when you go to a store, you want to buy a grower producer champagne. And what that means is it's probably going to be a champagne that you don't recognize. It's not going to be a champagne that's Vouv or Dom or Tattinger or, you know, any one that like you would automatically know that is in rap, like videos and rap videos and that's on TV. And you want to support the grower producers because the whole movement in champagne is a lot of these people who've been growing grapes for generations and generations are now taking back their grapes and making their own wine. And it is literally some of the best champagne you'll ever have. Plus, none of the big champagne houses are organic. And none of them are what I would consider a quote unquote natural champagne. So if you're thinking about what's in your body, you might want to start looking smaller. That is a very short history of champagne. I mean, there's so much more we could go into, but I think for me, it's important for everyone to understand and identify what a champagne. Don't get tricked by a glass of Prosecco with someone telling you it's champagne. It's not. It's Prosecco probably. I mean, one hot tip when you are trying to conceptualize what is champagne is champagne is one of the most overused wine monikers, right? People throw champagne around like it's for everything that's sparkling and in a flute. So I would say like most of the weddings you go to, the server's going to come up to you and say, hey, would you like a glass of champagne? And I guarantee you that most of the time it's not champagne. It is sparkling wine or Prosecco. And I think the main difference is all champagne is technically a sparkling wine, but not all sparkling wine can be champagne because it's not made in champagne or made in those methods. Let me just give you an example. Prosecco, which commonly masquerades as quote unquote champagne and is often offered discreetly as it. And most people maybe can't taste the difference but it's a much less expensive wine. It's made in Italy. It's made from totally different grapes as champagne. It's made from the Glera grape. And a lot of times for very inexpensive, large production champagne, it's made sparkling by a method called the tank method, which is all the still wine is in one big tank. And then that tank gets charged with CO2, which is what makes the wine sparkling. So it's not going through that romantic, you know, Madame Clicquot, I'm in the basement riddling, I'm going through a secondary fermentation. It, it doesn't have that experience. It's much more immediate, which is also why the price point is much less expensive. And the result you know, if you're a real person into wine or a connoisseur of bubbles, right, you're going to be able to see the difference in the refinement of those bubbles. Prosecco has bigger, more lackadaisical, less refined and precise bubbles, whereas champagne, you see the little streams going up. The bubbles are so small. They're so precise. Look at the bottle. Look for the champagne word. And when you're going in, if you got to twist my arm, if I had to get a bottle of champagne that's more recognizable. There are some that I feel are at a quality level I'm really into. I mean, I would never turn down Dom Perignon. I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's delicious. I also like Billicart Samom. I think it's also very good. Some cuvées of Tattinger, also very good. But in the show notes, I can shout out some grower producers. 
and also some big houses. But before you go, because it is almost the new year, 2023, it's going to pop off. Either you're going to get a bottle of champagne or for this edition of Cocktail Corner, I have two cocktails that you could attempt with champagne. And let me just say, if you don't have a champagne budget, you could sub this out for a sparkling wine like a Cremant. But if you want to ball out and do this with champagne, the first one is the OG, the classic quote unquote champagne cocktail. I put it in quotes because it's like Roaring Twenties vibes. Like you're in Paris. I will have a champagne cocktail, please. You're in an Hermes Hemingway novel. Like that's the vibe. You need very few ingredients, okay? You need one Demerara sugar cube, right? Those are the brown sugar cubes. You drop that in your glass. You need two shakes of Angostura bitters is my preference. Put that in the glass. Then you're going to top with four ounces roughly of chilled champagne. And Basically, the champagne and the Angostura will dissolve the sugar cube over time. I like to finish it with a lemon twist. You could also put a little zest into the glass. But my second favorite cocktail that you can make with champagne is called Airmail. It's one ounce of light rum, half ounce lime juice, half ounce honey syrup. You shake it, you pour it into a coupe, and you top with champagne. It's literally so special, so delicious. I'm obsessed with it. And let me leave you with one last piece of advice. When you're drinking champagne this season, you don't need a flute and you don't need a coupe. They're fun and they're decorative, but they don't actually make the wine better. Champagne's best explored and enjoyed in a real wine glass with a stem so you don't heat it up with your hand. All right, my friends, that is champagne in a tiny nutshell, in a little acorn that lives in the forest. We got to, you know, gather up more champagne acorns and just like really make some sort of nut butter. I'm going to tell you right now, go buy a bottle. You can go to helenswines.com. We have an amazing selection of grower producer champagne. You can also probably buy champagne almost anywhere. Actually, it's one of the most trustworthy rando liquor store or grocery store buys because at a certain level, there is an amount of quality in that bottle, but you are going to have to pay for it. If you want to follow along on what I'm drinking this holiday New Year's 2023 season, go to Helen's Wines Instagram, which is at Helen's Wines, or check out everything else we're doing. Helen's Wines.com. Cheers. <laughs> 